My conversation today is with Phoenix Aurelius, alchemist, researcher, educator, and modern-day Renaissance man. Truly. He heads the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy, an educational research center and apothecary dedicated to providing cutting-edge investigative methods into the practice of alchemy. One of Phoenix's missions is to introduce spagyria, a remedial application of alchemical processes, into the fabric of mainstream society as a form of healing that has the potential to positively impact lifestyles, bioculture, and overall well-being to an exceedingly significant degree. We sat down to talk about several topics, including alchemy, spagyria, and their effects on consciousness, not only through ingestion, but also and especially as praxis. We also touched on tropical versus sidereal astrological influences on agriculture and the incredible calendar which the Academy has released for 2023, collating years of research in the field, the astronomological calendar. Phoenix's depth of knowledge and ability to synthesize, articulate, and contextualize so many different aspects of the traditions left me humbled and inspired, and I'm very pleased to share our conversation with you all. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. So I'm, I'm very interested in, in uh, a lot of the stuff that you do. I am, I guess, kind of an amateur herbalist myself. Uh, I'm somebody who's only... I've been studying this stuff... For longer than I even thought I had. I've been telling people since 2009, but I found these notebooks uh, like three <laughs> or four days ago that I, and it, they were dated from 2004 and it was, they had a bunch of Kabbalah in it and stuff. So I'm like, wow, it's, it's been that yeah. long. Um, but, but the thing is I, I'm relatively new to, I haven't given practical alchemy a shot. And part of the reason is that I already have many expensive hobbies. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and the other reason is that it was inculcated uh, to me by one of my first, I guess you would call it teachers in the Western esoteric tradition to primarily focus more on spiritual alchemy um, mm -hmm. because of the nature of what I was doing. And so for a while I was I was kind of scratching my head at practical, uh, like lab alchemists. And now it's like, man, um, I've been missing out on something really cool for a really long time. Yeah, well, I guess it just depends on where you come from. I'm actually um, reading a book right now that kind of touches a lot on spiritual practices of alchemists in the from the like 19th century occult revival until the present. And that's what you hear most of the people saying, even Israel Rigardi before he went to study alchemy with Frater Albertus uh, was very much so of that opinion, you know, and what's funny is that inside of those circles, I rarely see somebody that practices practical alchemy. And so all these guys are saying, Oh, you know, you should really just focus on the spiritual alchemy, the spiritual alchemy. And I just think that that gets perpetuated because people don't know where to begin with the lab alchemy and they would lead somebody down the wrong road or pretentiously be doing something that they wouldn't. But uh, right. yeah, the, the alchemical practices, uh, spiritual alchemical practices, I mean to say of most of Western esoteric mysticism is 
pretty intact though. It's really good work. And you find that the people who do it increase their discipline massively and are able to accomplish a great deal more than what they were ever able to accomplish before. So it's a viable path all of its own, I think, but it becomes a lot more integrated in my experience, Um, having a a spiritual alchemy background and then having gotten, uh, and then also practicing spagyrics without even knowing that that's what I was doing. The spagyria had anything to do with alchemy for like the first two years I was practicing. And then um, later kind of putting all of that, into a laboratory practice it's i think it's the most potent and impactful system of initiation of western mysteries that i've ever experienced and you know i I do experience a lot and i read a lot um so yeah maybe that means something yeah absolutely and actually my first my first real introduction to to taking it seriously um and I don't mean to say that I began practicing it, but I started taking it seriously was in actually, I think the, uh, the philosopher stone, uh, it, it was either the or it might've been in the actual text, but, uh, regularly mentioning that, uh, I did not believe a jot of the laboratory alchemy until I saw Frater Albertus. Yeah, you know, do you know? Uh, I think he either made the stone or he did a, he did the, the transmutation to gold. I think it was a transmutation to gold, and um, really won him over. And then shortly after that, as uh, <clears throat> synchronicity would have it, I I read something by Mark Stavish on uh, his forays in in practical lab alchemy, and the way that he explained it really really made sense to me. In in that you're kind of creating this microcosm relative to your macrocosm and putting this plant material through um and 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 going through that journey with it and uh but putting it through a, a an alchemical process that you would like to have happen to you as well and having that be ref- reflected in the entire process and then you know taking that into your physical organism um as a spagyric and and I really appreciated the spiritual practice that was that accompanied all that stuff. There was a lot of prayer, there was a lot of meditation and and that kind of stuff. And it's definitely something that I'm very interested in. And I think it's something worth talking about because I know a lot of people who just do spiritual alchemy. And I think I, I really do think that there there is a um there's an audience for it that is just not, they don't know, like you said, I think you put it perfectly, they don't know where to begin. So where would you suggest someone begins? You know, that's a pretty good question. Amork um, had a system um, in the early 20th century, we're talking like the 1930s, where they would teach the first couple of degrees of initiation, but then they would also have classes uh, available to teach people basic spagyrics and so on and so forth. And realistically, from about the time of the scientific revolution onwards, it's the Rosicrucian tradition that really encapsulated and preserved alchemy to the best of its ability. And so um, they took a lot of liberty with various spiritual practices and like called them historical. That happened a lot just during the 19th century in general with history and and not even just metaphysics, but metaphysics ideas became very syncretic 
people were drawing from all sorts of different types of uh, sorts of inspiration, kind of creating something that worked for the time, but they would say, oh, this is, this is very, very ancient, right? Like this comes directly from Egypt. And it's like, well, threads of it definitely do. Um, the practices themselves, maybe not a hundred percent historically accurate. Uh, it doesn't stand up to scholasticism all the time. Alchemy is no different than that. Um, in fact, from the time of Paracelsus onwards, we have this sulfur, mercury, salt theory that pervades all of modern Western day spiritual alchemy. But we actually begin to see it in the laboratory with uh, various materials. And so when we're taking a look at the practices of lab alchemy as they exist today, the easiest ways to get into them, especially for people coming from a spiritual alchemy background, are the very first practices that Amork put out in their spagyric work. And it has been suggested uh, and taught by Frater Albertus, who was essentially born out of that Amork tradition uh, or his lab practice and stuff like, for instance, he studied himself uh, at San Jose uh, Rosicrucian Park. And then um, once they stopped offering alchemy classes there, then he ended up publishing through the Rosicrucian Journal various uh, advertisements to get his students. And what that work typically looks like today are what are called spagyric tinctures. And the first step is to take seven of them. Uh, each one of them is made for one day of the week and corresponds to the planetary correspondence of those days of the week in the Western mystery tradition. So Saturn for Saturday, Sun for Sunday, Mun for Moon days, uh, so on and so forth. But um, the reason that we do that is you make seven different spagyric tinctures that have a good amount of fixed sulfur. Fixed sulfur would be our fixed ego, basically, and the aspects of us that we can't necessarily change that contribute to how other people perceive us and how we perceive and identify ourselves. So like our clothing choices, the color of our hair, the shortness of our hair, the style that which we come across, the sound of our voice, right? Some of these things, they're fixed into our persona, they're fixed and they accompany the body of the material in the same way that we can use pure spirit or alcohol to be able to extract that essence from the body. It comes from the body of, of the herb that we're extracting. And so what we end up seeing is that spirit is our discipline. It's our awareness. It's our ability to get in the lab and to crush that herb down over and over and over to a point where it's actually really fine, which operating mortar and pestle just for the first few times in initiatic practice. I mean, you're, you're sore and like crazy. I mean, your hand hurts, but you just have to grind those things and you learn how to put time and effort into something that you ultimately use as a tool to develop quantum observation. Like it's like you recognize that that plant actually is a quality of your, your psyche. Because the whole concept, since about the time of Pythagoras in Western metaphysics, is really that you are everything externally and that you are the master of that being part of humanity. We are the most volatile of all of the beings, and we are made up of all of the different elements of metals, of minerals, of vegetables, of animal components, and we take and absorb all these things in. So when we're working with these members of the plant 
kingdom, we are actually working with a part of ourselves that we have already evolved through in order to be this pinnacle of humankind. And you're reawakening it and you're putting it through a process, a sequential process of transformation or even of exaltation doesn't always have to be towards the, you know, ad perpetrante transformatione, as we'd call it, to the purpose of transformation. Really just needs to be consistent progress towards the exaltation and the pristine structure of that thing. And in making a spagyric tincture, you go through initiation after initiation after initiation with each different phase. Um, and the further that you refine your substances and the more attention that you put on it, the more you get out of it. So that's why I always tell my students, the slower you go, the faster you get where you're going. But then it, it provides you with a physical substance that you yourself have made and crafted with this material where you have quantum, you know, through this quantum state of observation, identified it to be yourself or an aspect of yourself. And then you can take that perfected medicine to be able to volatilize, so to speak, the energy channels in the physical body to be able to uh, operate within the, the um, framework of that planetary spheres uh, kind of archetypal energy within you. And so, you know, when we talk about path working in Western spiritual esoteric uh, work and navigating our way through as Chaim or through the tree of life, um, the way that we do that in alchemy is by working through the plants and through different items of pharmacopoeia and then into the, the um, animal realm and the mineral realm and then finally into the metallic realm. And the amorx system basically has this way of creating um, items of pharmacopoeia and, and goals so to speak, inside of your lab work that constantly keep you moving. And I, I personally don't think anybody was better at creating a, a system in this regard as um, Jean Dubuis was. And his systems, the philosophers of nature, are, are the very best. So, yeah, I, I think that it would be good to look into the old Amor curriculums if you could find them. If not, in my personal opinion, I think the Jean Dubuis material of the philosophers of nature is kind of where it's at the best place to start for most people. That's brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, actually, I, th I think the, the philosophers of nature stuff is it's online for free, at least a significant amount of it. I've, I've looked mm -hmm. into, I've looked into that stuff. So just in case anybody's listening, uh, I'm pretty sure you can just go and download it. I'll include a link in the uh, show notes. So you, you mentioned something about, uh, well, you mentioned that it's, it's, it's typically through spagyric alchemy. So spagyric alchemy working with, with plants. Um, a lot of people think alchemy and right out of the gate, they think metals, um, which is, you know, like you were saying, uh, kind of a, 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 an attenuation uh, of it. I think that that kind of comes back to the, that whole idea of, how frequently it's used as a spiritual analogy and you know um so it's it, it yeah. i guess they ju they just borrowed the mineral aspect to kind of signify uh that kind of thing but um i i know that you run a research academy um based on all this stuff and one of the goals is to integrate spagyric alchemy into our society um why do you think uh spagyrics would be the best uh, candidate within the, the alchemical, uh, sort of milieu for that? Well, 
Um, two things. One, what the Amorc tradition refined and relinquished Spagyria into was not the full, complete medical system that it actually is. Like Paracelsus wrote it as an entire system of medicine with, a, with its own systems of diagnoses, its own causations of disease, its cures. And by no means did any of the cures or the items of pharmacopoeia were they, first of all, restricted to alchemical lab work? There was a lot of energetic healing and psychic healing and other, other different types of things inside of that uh, pharmacopoeia that even very progressive woo-woo individuals today would be like, wow, this was way advanced. Like this is stuff people still aren't even touching upon or scraping upon um, in the modern day. So that that's one thing. Um, the definition of spagyria changed and that was created largely because of this 19th century spiritual alchemist thing and then when actual alchemists got on stage they had a hard enough time even describing like what is the difference between you know this work and this work and these people's works and again they're they're the amorc path work is highly syncretic meaning that it doesn't stick with one alchemical author and just show all of the items that that alchemical author uh, talked about and then reproduce them like just Basil Valentine, for instance, or just, uh, you know, Homer, Anton Kirchweger, for instance, from the Golden Chain of Homer. They drew from everything and kind of created a unique synthesis of different items of pharmacopoeia and coursework over time, which in its own right is brilliant. But that's what they ended up calling uh, spagyria was the herbal works that you take on first. Whereas Spagyria, actually, the way that I'm showing it and the way that Paracelsus talked about it himself, uh, actually, there is no barrier to just sticking with the, with the herbal realm. So I guess that's one of the first things I wanted to clarify for listeners is that when you hear the term Spagyric, even amongst most of the, the greats like Albertus, Jean Dubuis, um, Manfred Junius, anybody who was born kind of out of that 19th century occult revival alchemical slant, um, they will call spagyria and relinquish it um, plant alchemy, but it, it really isn't. That being said, the first works that they call spagyric in those texts are really critical and foundational because they start off at a level where you don't need to have a lot of specialized equipment or a lot of expertise in order to get into it. And so you can use simple stuff that you probably already have around instead of uh, going and buying a crucible and crucible tongs, you can use just a couple of like meat barbecue tongs and a stainless steel condiment container. Instead of using highly expensive flasks, you can now use mason jars, right? Like uh, you can go and buy alcohol at 95% pure in many different states, and you don't need to be able to distill it yourself. So you don't need to go and buy a distillation setup and start off really big all at once. You can start off at kind of this very simple, approachable way that allows you to be able to make your seven dailies with stuff that you probably already have around in your kitchen in order to demonstrate the principles of these things and to be able to see what it is, even at those early phases with an easy application of those principles, the quality and, and the virtues of the medicines that you make. And when you take those seven dailies, the idea is that you make enough for an entire year of you taking them. And you only need like three to five drops a, a day, pardon me. And so, you know, you, you're taking your Saturn, Saturn plants that correspond to that would be like comfrey, 
um, horsetail, uh, chuchuasi, like there, there's all sorts of different types of herbs that correspond to Saturn, but you would choose one, you would make a spagyric tincture of it, and then you would take three drops of that when it's finished every Saturday for an entire year. And you do that with each of your other planetary dailies. And that refines the physiological, the etheric, and the astral components of your being for an entire year with that planetary influence so that you can begin to perceive more so that you can move the traumas uh, out of the way, you know, so that you have more etheric energy and psychic capacity to work with in the first place. And um, yeah. And again, you have the entire initiatic process of being able to make it. And the thing that Jean de noted about alchemy that I really love laboratory alchemy is that it's like no other system of initiation that we know of because it's a, a complete system of self-initiation. You can't fool yourself if you actually like didn't make the thing properly or didn't it didn't achieve the result that you were hoping for it to achieve. You can't go to the next level. You may have done a lot of work, but you're not initiated into the next level. You didn't like earn it. You can't, and you can't deceive yourself about it because the project didn't work. Only when it works, can you move to the next level type of thing. And um, yeah, I think that that's kind of really beautiful about it and tells you when you're ready to move on. A lot of practitioners don't do that and they try and get as fast through the herbs as possible and go into the metals. And I've seen more people lose their minds do that because the herbs are volatile and they're safe. They have strong effect for a short period of time. So you have to keep taking them in order to keep up that effect. The more fixed the material is, you know, like let's talk about uh, a mineral like potassium carbonate, potassium carbonate or potassium acetate or whatever. Now that's a mineral. It's not necessarily a metal because it's, it's acted upon by an outside agent that has catalyzed it to behave in a different way. It has its metal form in there, potassium. But if we go straight to metallic potassium, we're working literally with such a pure consciousness. There's only one element in that potassium ion, and that is potassium. And so it is so pure, whereas an animal material is made of dozens and dozens and dozens of different metals and minerals, which minerals are broken down, less fixed forms. And then plants, same thing, dozens of minerals and acids and reactive gases and all these things. And humans were composed of the very most of all of those things. And so you know, when you work with metals, you're working with the very core elemental substances that minerals and eventually plants and eventually animals and then eventually humans come from. And it's such core identity aspects that you really run the risk of losing your mind if you get into the work and try and progress it too fast. There's a reason why Amorx set those processes out. And it's not just to keep learners, you know, going slowly. It's because if you follow this, it will actually lead you through a system that opens up the energy channels in the appropriate way and in the appropriate time. So, Yeah, I, I think something that gets lost a lot in the, the Western esoteric traditions, even in, uh, like we say, spiritual um, trajectories uh, of initiation, is the idea of etheric energy. We dance around it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um it's it's much more fleshed out in 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 eastern systems in my experience having uh ex being trained in right. in um chinese medicine and qigong and and all that stuff uh i spent many years doing that and then bringing it over to to magical systems uh western esoteric 
initiatic magical systems um you are working with etheric energy no matter what you do in life uh (laughs) but but the the thing is there's there's not the same awareness and i i like that you bring that up that that there is this etheric component i mean ultimately that that's that's part of the work right is is uh is really working with that I, i i would assume yeah well, you know, uh, it depends, like by the time the Rosicrucians in the t- early 20th century, which are, are definitely the traditions of Jean Dubuis and Frater Albertus and kind of the tradition that even my own work was born from, I, I've started to go back and revert back to a more historically intact form, specifically focusing on Spagyria, um in my own personal lab work, in my own uh, professional, uh, especially, but the system that I was born out of, they get you to do practices that essentially achieve the same result as if you were to be performing Negong or Qigong. Because when you were watching a distillation, first of all, there actually is the ceremonial movement of all of the pieces. You move slow because the glass is thin and also because the substances are precious. And so if you move around quickly, you risk spilling them, breaking them, shattering the container. You can't do that. And it's a very same concept within the movements of Qigong and how you draw energy, how you breathe. All of these things are critically important. And in proper laboratory alchemy, you will end up doing the same thing, moving very slowly, deliberately setting the thing up. And this is kind of the yang aspect of the practice, if we were to borrow terms from TCM or of the Taoist tradition. The yin aspect of the practice comes in once you actually get the system set up, turned on. Now you're using attention and paying attention to the material in the flask. And so under the flask is an actual heating element, which is heating it. But we're using our internal attention and awareness as well in order to be able to see and, and observe what's going on and use that flask and its boiling material as the visual data to tell us how we are transforming in our spirit, because the part that it's distilling is the spirit, you know, water, alcohol, these are the spirits, the mercury. And so we're, we're beginning to gently heat these up and watching as the volition of the spirit is able to rise and eventually descend and be purified through this process of rising as the Emerald tablet tells us from earth to heaven and descends again back to earth thereby containing within itself the powers of both the above and the below, right? And it's that thing. And so the alchemist not only is using the attention as a heat source, but also using breath as a source of space of awareness. And as you inhale, you can feel as the substance in your boiling flask is volatilizing. And as you exhale, you can feel that it comes down the beak of the retort or starts to condense and flow down the alembic head. And everything that you do, you know, as you're watching those little drops fall from the end of your retort and into a flask, each, the space between each drop becomes an infinity of potential thought and of depth of thought that you don't usually get um, with normal waking consciousness. And so for me, the it, th- that entire process is so similar to the processes of Qigong. Just in a different way. And of course, you know, even the Taoists themselves say, oh, we developed the spiritual practices 
but the old masters actually used to practice alchemy and they were actually working with things. They were refining cinnabar and they were, you know, making nitric acids and, you know, doing all of these other things. Even in their tradition, they acknowledged that the lab work initially came first and then the spiritual tradition got isolated because lab work's hard, you know? Yeah. I mean, so, it, it's, that's very interesting. Well, first, the first thing I, I, I think would be uh, appropriate to point out is that's actually a uh, Masonic tradition as well, right? They say our, our ancient brethren wrought in operative masonry, whereas we work in speculative. It's, yes. it's a very, and, and, and what's really interesting is um, being somebody who, who works with their hands and things like that. I garden, I'm a carpenter professionally and, and uh, a musician there, you know, there, there are these moments where no matter what you're doing in terms of mundane life, you get this, this clarity, this, yeah. pre this presence of consciousness uh, that, that comes oftentimes off the mat for me. Like it happens in life, you know, yeah, this, exactly. Spon this spontaneous uh, revelation, most literal sense of that word, uh, uh, revealing um, of 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 place and time, and specifically of consciousness, and that gets lost in the mix. Consciousness is almost uh, like a dog on a chain to your thoughts. Your thoughts and your consciousness are not, you know, they're not the same thing. The the you know the 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 observing capacity, the I am behind those things. Yeah. When when that's allowed to sort of just be, um, it's a very magical and, and transformative, and and can be very initiatic. Uh, I think, yeah. and that's a it's 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 a really good point to bring that up, because um, I I mean I definitely didn't know that I didn't know that uh, there were breathing techniques that accompanied this and and yang and yin phases it's it's becoming more and more attractive to me by the minute so <laughs> <laughs> well yeah see what in in the western alchemical lab practice theory what they call yin in the taoist tradition we would call that celestial salt and what we you know what they would call yang we would call that celestial niter and these are basically like we would call them causal archetypes if we wanted to think about it in terms of geometries we're talking about uh, angles and segments or zeros and ones. If we wanted to talk about it in terms of binary, again, zeros and ones, we're just, you know, it, it's the very same basis that structures absolutely anything, positive, negative polarities, et cetera, et cetera, you know, in terms of the foundations of electromagnesis. So we're, we're always, you know, if, if something is good in one tradition, you will find it in another tradition, just described another way, just slightly. The con the concepts behind it or the philosophy behind it um, is always the same, but the flavor that they style the dish with, so to speak, is what ends up changing. So it's like you've had chicken a thousand different ways. You know, the enlightenment is chicken, and it just gets served up differently and spiced in different dishes. So. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Um... Uh, so going with what you're saying, this is, this is a problem that I've had, right? Because you're even in initiatic traditions that focus on the spiritual stuff, uh, you have to, you're left with a few alchemical terms. Well, more than a few alchemical yeah, yeah, yeah. terms, symbols, diagrams, tracts, treatises, uh, 
personages, uh, events, right? There's this mm-hmm. whole alchemical history that we want to cleave to and in, in, in this part of the tradition, but you don't really get much until you, you go and learn about it yourself. And one of the, th- another issue uh, again is, when I am studying alchemy and the alchemical tra- uh, tracts, the source material specifically, uh, I feel like when Alice in Wonderland is in that really, really <laughs> weird forest right before she meets the Cheshire cat, I, I have no, I have, there's no way for me to figure out which way to go. So how is it that you approach parsing these texts? Is that something that you do? Yeah, you know, definitely in my own in my own alchemical practice and my own alchemical experience, um, I started looking at those texts primarily as a result of the Amorc and Jean Dubuis coursework. They would, you know, make quotes of something, and then I'd go in, and I'd take a look at that text, and take a look at the alchemical practices that they were actually performing. That is. For me, that has uh, made those texts so much more contextually easy to guide yourself through. It's not as disorienting as being in the fever dream forest, so to speak, but you're able to instead kind of understand like, okay, this guy is talking about a pyrolytic distillation. And so what material could he be talking about based on the descriptions that are here? But we know we're using fire and we're capturing a vapor that his material doesn't sound like a liquid sounds like a solid that automatically tells us pyrolytic distillation. And then we can say like, okay, if he's seeing peacock iridescence in it, either there's something that happens with the material that he's working in where in its liquid state, uh, once it gets distilled, you're seeing that or more, more likely he's working with copper or nickel. And then you can even try that in your laboratory, try and take, you know, some material and pyrolytically prepare it and and so on and so forth, and then distill it and be like, did either of those produce that color? Oh, this one produced that color. Cool. He must be talking about copper. But just like the spiritual alchemists do, this is why it's, it's actually so important. You can't just say like, okay, that's copper and that's the chemical component. Otherwise, you're just practicing chemistry, a really base form of chemistry, in fact. The alchemist takes a look at that and says, okay, is this part of my body? Is this part of my soul? Is this part of my spirit? What is happening? What is the catalytic converter, you know, conversion, I guess, process that is happening here? And how can I like understand that to better my understanding of self, you know, transformation or self-exaltation? Um So those texts, they are really illuminated by the lab work and you have to have, especially with the old dudes, like, you know, early, early, like late dark ages, very early Renaissance are probably some of the most enigmatic, but during the Renaissance, they got very enigmatic as well. It wasn't until about the time of the scientific revolution where people were starting to speak in relatively straightforward terms. And even then they didn't have chemical terminology for, you know, another 50 to 150 years so they would still have to refer to things as like, oh, a green lion. And you'd have to know that the green lion, the green lion objectively does not exist. It's a subjective thing. Two authors can be talking about a green lion, talking about two different works. They're not talking about the same substance or even the same processes or anything. So 
you really have to have a familiarity with the lab work to know what they would even be talking about by way of processes and then narrow it down from there based on your experience with uh, other things. And in the modern age, we get that luxury and we also have the luxury of being able to talk about the substances that they were making in chemical terms now so that we can get it even more precise. It's, I've talked about this a number of times on various podcasts that alchemy itself underwent the alchemical process from the time of Paracelsus onward. Uh, Paracelsus kind of created this new version of alchemy, you know, which is spagyric medicine, use alchemy to create medicines and to, to destroy disease. Don't necessarily use it just for the transformation of alchemical, um, you know, of lead into gold or of baser metals into gold or for other more base kind of purposes, but to be able to use it for something important. And then eventually, just a couple hundred years after he invented it, it got separated. Spiritual components went one way, especially with Amorc. The laboratory components devolved into chemistry. And the psychological components went towards Jungian psychology, Freudian Jungian psychology. And so the soul, the spirit, and the body of alchemy have been separated. And we're in a really cool time now that they've all been really well worked on and purified to a degree that where we put them all back together in the present moment, we have even a greater understanding of each of the individual components. And we can do things far greater than what the old dudes could because we have a greater level of understanding. We're standing on their shoulders so we can see further. that's an excellent uh that's an amazing analogy i love that uh everything kind of separating out from there it's you know because without that kind of historical context and that 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 depth or familiarity with the the history of it um these things do kind of seem it's like where you know where do where do all these things come from? What are they revolving around? Jungian psychology, as you're saying, these uh, you know, I guess I don't know what you want to call it, theosophical or new age kind of uh, spiritualities that that have 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 penetrated and are undergoing you know evolutionary processes themselves right now, and and uh, and then yeah, absolutely chemistry. Um, you kind of think to yourself sometimes on the the initiatic path, maybe, uh, man, if we could all just get along, if everything could come together, <laughs> that it it would be the one thing, right? The only <laughs> <Yeah>. one thing. <laughs> but um, how much familiarity with chemistry do you think, you know, spiritual practitioners who who want to get become familiar with with laboratory alchemy? Uh, how much do they have to know? Well, let me put it like this. I've still never taken a chemistry class in my life. I know nothing about chemical equations. I've never stepped into a chemistry class. Um, and I started, uh, I'm not necessarily proud to say that either. I'm just proving a point. Um, I, I probably do really well if I took some chemistry classes, but everything I've learned has been self-learned. And I started doing early spagyric work when I was 17, almost 18 years old. So realistically, you don't need to ha have much experience, you know, don't need to be very old in order to really start practicing and to start reaping the benefits, especially the most practical benefits of um, making medicines for yourself for consciousness as well as for health. You need not a lot. You need some herbs, which I suggest you find. 
not necessarily go out and buy them. If, if, you know, you're so busy that you can't do uh, you can't go out and find them or it's a wrong season and you're really looking to get started or something like that. That's one thing, but it's always better to find them and let the herbs speak to you. You're going out looking for herbs, but then you might find one, especially today. It's cool. Cause you have, you know, phone apps. It's like, Oh, what the hell is that? Oh, what the hell is that? And it'll tell you straight away. You don't have to like, you go to the library and check out plant identification books and, you know, toil to find out what it is. You can just find it out relatively easily, but then, you know, it's like, oh, all the shit grows in my yard. Like, what's this? Oh, that's plantain leaf. Oh, and plantain is good for, oh, kidneys and skin and blah, blah, blah. I have all these skin breakouts. You'll find like nine times out of 10, the quote unquote weeds that are growing in your yard are actually the medicinal allies that are saying you could use us the most. You have these physical characteristics that show that you are lacking us. Take us. We have the planetary frequency that you need. And so, um, you know, if you have like a lot of, you know, wild carrot growing in your yard, or if you have a lot of dandelion, I mean, tons of people have dandelion. And I'll tell you the people that have the most dandelions in their yard are usually the heaviest drinkers or those who are taking drugs, opiates, et cetera, because it's like, ah, help us. We got the liver thing. We got it on lockdown. Like you can't go wrong. Any part of us is going to work for the liver. Like no matter what, just, just take it. And people don't, but that's the concept is like, listen to nature, realizing that the world around you, you are just inside of a large flask that is centrifuging around a large heat source. And essentially, if you pay attention to that and realize like, oh, all of these things around me are also components of me. They're coming from within me. And I am also just like being created in the mind of another. I am, I'm really just like a molecule in a, even a larger macrocosmic structure and so on and so forth. You can begin to identify the things around you and you find that you have all of your seven planets, all of your seven dailies that you need immediately, sometimes not even further than your own yard or 150 feet from your own house. So it's important to kind of look towards those things. And then you need some mason jars, stainless steel condiment containers, something to uh, burn with, you know, just a little fire pit. Uh, I like to use a rocket stove, actually. It's much more efficient and it gets hotter temperature and you don't put out as much exhaust either. Um, and a couple of like small pieces of equipment. So like people can start with no technical knowledge, no chemical knowledge, nothing. If you can burn some things and if you can make tea slowly, then you can definitely start with spagyria. And it's cool because each different item that you make can draw you in a little deeper and say, you know, in order to undertake this work, which I feel I could do if I wanted to now, is I need to buy this little piece of equipment. How much does that cost? Oh, it's like 60 bucks for me to get a small retort. Cool, I'll buy that. And then I can do some base distillations, make some more um, complicated items of pharmacopoeia, you know, to work on, on different structures. Or I can start to, you know, for a $600 investment or whatever, I can start to distill my own essential oils for my own work and so on and so forth. And so that's kind of the way that I got into it was tiptoeing into it, doing things, for a long time until I felt that I could move to the next level and then finally moving to the next level. And my first distillation kit was a teapot, uh, teapot and duct tape, copper tubing, and uh, an empty two liter bottle. That's what I used. So, you know, you don't have to know much about much and you don't even need to have much of an enterprising MacGyver type ingenuity uh, because there's, you know, like 
ask Jeeves and all of the other things that have existed since like 2004 or whatever, when I was a kid that you ask, you know, simple stuff, like how do you distill something and it'll show you, and then you'll get all sorts of pictures. I mean, you don't even have to be a MacGyver and put things together anymore. You just look online and there'll be other people who have done what you wanted to do and you can learn how to do it. And there's even multiple places to buy really cheap, affordable labware these days when you do want to expand. So yeah. Most people I would expect have no chemical knowledge and that should not bar somebody from getting into alchemy. The ancients didn't have much either. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very encouraging. Uh, makes me take heart. Uh, I would never have guessed in a million years that you've, that you have no chemistry, formal chemistry background. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's like anything else, right? The more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. And, uh, it seems like, seems like the people who have made an earnest start at it get, like you're saying, do get drawn in. Um, I started, uh, I started herbalism a couple of years back. Um, I've distilled, uh, essential oils and hydrosols and things like that. And of course, obviously tinctures and teas and in in Chinese medicine, we do those three hour decoctions, right? That slow, that slow tea. Uh, but the thing like right now, uh, it's, it's getting close to, to planting season. So we're, Mm -hmm. we're starting, we're starting seeds and stuff like that. We have, uh, we have a grow, grow room and a grow station here. Um, and a couple of beds. One thing that I've kind of been curious about over the years, and I've actually gotten people, a few people to, uh, they, they've, they've just randomly asked me recently, in terms of astrology, right? Let's say you want to go by moon phase. That's really easy. Or you want to do, um, you want to, you want to do day and hour uh, formula for, for harvesting or for transplanting or something like that. Uh, the thing is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of competing references and stuff like that. I mean, how do you deal with stuff like that? Do you deal with stuff like that? What kind of references do you use? Yeah, that's a really good question. In fact, you know, um, I initially started off with the references for the uh, salt, sulfur, and mercury hours and, and charts from the International Alchemy Guild, which are all based in the Rosicrucian tradition that Amor put out many, many years ago. Um so those are very common. You'll, you'll see those without much discrepancy within a lot of Western, especially like, uh, like somebody from France in the Kabbalistic order, Rosé Krukis, and somebody in Amorc are going to have the exact same charts. Like it, it's pretty clear from Germany westward that tradition within the Western uh, mes- uh, esoteric mystery traditions these days. <laughs> That's the way I learned. Um, eventually I grew into learning more about Paracelsus work and I was, Paracelsus put down all of the astrologers of his day. He hated their form of astrology and told them that tropical astrology was entirely fake. And so that got me thinking like, oh, okay, well, if Paracelsus was saying that, but he was still saying that the cause of disease, one of the causes of disease in spagyric medicine is the cause of disease due to stars. He's not saying throw astronomy out he's saying astrology is different like and even in during his time it was about half a sign off during our time it's definitely a sign off and so i started doing split test clinical trials with clients to be able to see if i could use medical astrology of the western the renaissance tradition to predict uh, different styles of disease um, in 
various clinical trial people. So they would come to me and they would say, okay, look, I'm interested in being a research subject. I'm willing to pay this much in order to have custom spagyrics produced for me based on whatever you find in your astrology deal. And that's what funded the research. Now, what I did was when I took them on, I said, okay, first, in order for you to even be applicable towards this, I have to be able to cast a a chart in a couple of different systems. And then I will tell you based on those natal charts, what your life's general um, predispositions, health predispositions are likely to be. Now, this is going to be within the course of an entire lifespan, but I'm going to be focusing on the things that are most likely to affect you right now based on your transits and stuff. And when we did that, I only had like a 62%, 62 to 65% accuracy um, using tropical astrology. And when I used sidereal astrology of the Vedic form, now that went up to about 80%. The highest I got was 83% with one of the clients. And so we decided to continue the process with that uh, Vedic astrology because we didn't have many other choices at that point. We didn't know how to get more correct than 80 to about 85% with those predictions. And we found that uh, the systems of correspondences uh, that we would find in in texts like Nicholas Culpepper's and, uh, of course, um, you know, there's Dennis William Houck has his own version that he published through the International Alchemy Guild, which I was using at the time, of herbs and foods and materials that correspond to these planets, and then simultaneously preparing those under the planetary hours charts that we would find. And in all cases that we could, we would harvest the medicines or grow the medicines under those planetary hour charts as well. And so um, we were doing the very best that we could with the data that we had, but throughout the course of that research, uh, which was 13 months long clinical research with, uh, we have 58 different research subjects, about 43 of them finished all 13 months. So the data indicates that basically the the planets and the planetary charts and the hours and things like that did not actually like the substances we were making or maybe the the way that we were talking about the herb itself and its planetary ruler it didn't seem to have much effect or it didn't eliminate in all cases the cause of disease due to the stars that we were looking for based on that research trial and so we knew that we had to hit the the drawing board again and eventually I saw Nassim Harmine's video of, you know, here's the sun and it itself is catapulting through space. And we're not just going around the sun like this in the 2D model. We're kind of going like this. We're corkscrewing and the sun is constantly moving forward and we're, you know, moving and, and like keeping along with it. And that got me thinking about different styles, charts and so on and so forth until eventually I ran into Athen Kimenti's work of MasteringTheZodiac.com, and he practices what he created as true sidereal astrology. It means that it's the exact same as astronomy. If I look up into the sky and I see Jupiter or Venus, the constellation that is directly behind them is the constellation that Jupiter or Venus are in. Now, for years up until then, I had also been practicing biodynamic agriculture, which uses a pretty similar system the main difference is that um, with Athens' system of true sidereal astrology, we take into account the little sliver of Ophiuchus that exists along the ecliptic as well. The other thing is, is that the constellations are not equal in size. Yeah, just one second here. 
Mm. Yeah, the constellations are not equal in size. <laughs> so essentially, um, the biodynamic model that I was using was not true to astronomy, and but it was close. And I found a great success, absolutely amazing success in the planting cycles of Maria Tune and of biodynamics. And I had experienced virtually the same things that Maria Tune over a 30 or 40 year career had published and talked about noticing as well that uh, things that are leaf plants like lettuce, for instance, if you plant them during a time where the constellation is in a water sign, then you will get the best results. So if you plant with, uh, you know, plant your lettuce when the moon is in Pisces, especially because it's an above ground harvest, you would ideally do that during a waxing cycle of the moon. So moon and Pisces waxing cycle, best time to plant, transplant, so etc. Then you will be able to see really extraordinary progress inside of that plant. And um, you don't usually want to harvest lettuces under a moon sign, or sorry, under a water sign. Um, just because they will go bad fast. So uh, unless you're eating them that same day, in which case they have a greater sap content, they're better for you. But for storage, you should do them on an air day, harvest them. But aside from that, the, it's pretty cut and dry that harvesting, planting, transplanting, etc., cetera, um, under one of the signs that has an elemental correspondence uh, that corresponds to either the root part, the leaf part, the flower part, or the fruit or seed part of the plant. And so I'd experienced good success with that. So when I found, when I found Athens work, what I started doing was taking uh, account of where the moon actually was in the sky, uh, not as you can calculate it, but as it actually is, because his calculation is damn near exactly the same. The only difference between astronomical positions and his positions are that the constellation of Aries may begin here and Taurus doesn't begin here. And in the sky, that takes the moon, you know, 30 minutes to move from the last star of Aries into the first star of Taurus, let's say. For astrology purposes, for everything except the moon, we have to draw a midpoint and say that that is the cusp. And so anything within a few degrees here and a few degrees here of that cusp are considered a blend of energies. That's the only difference that you're going to find between uh, his style of astrology and, and astronomy. And so we started running more tests, plant tests at this point. And we did them in aquaponic environments. We did it with our uh, beyond uh, organic, like regenerative no-till cannabis uh, production. We did it with... Um, I'm trying to think we did like carrots and tomatoes and a couple of other things and soil tests as well. And we found that that completely took care of all of the discrepancies that I had had in the past with the biodynamic calendar. And so I started extracting herbs according to that as well and found the very same thing. If I extract a plant like that, I'm, I'm harvesting its leaf, say like lemon balm, for instance, it's leaf and its stem. If I do that, I get a greater yield of two to 5% almost always on the extraction. Um, if I do that on a day that corresponds to a leaf, which is going to be a water sign when the moon is in, in a water sign. Um, and so we, we transplanted a lot of those principles and we're able to flesh them out and prove them 
Because they differed, though, we ended up referring to those as alchemiculture processes and times and alchemiculture uh, tables. What we started doing was saying, okay, what happens if I use things in a tropical system of astrology and calculate the ideal times and then do it versus this new system that, uh, that Athen had? And we were constantly showing that between tropical system, biodynamic system, and this new alchemiculture calendar, we had much greater success with the alchemiculture calendar and concepts. So that eventually led me um, to fleshing out a ton of different split test studies to see if we got greater vitality in our extractions, um, if we would grow the plant, for, you know, ourselves at our research gardens here under the, this very certain effect, harvested under a certain effect, extracted under that same effect, and so on and so forth, if we could increase the vitality according to control subjects that were not made with any real time care or preparation at all, but from the same batch of materials. And that's why we had to be able to grow stuff here uh, on our at our research gardens. And what we found was a system that we can reliably um, utilize and that has been utilized now for two years, all the way across the world, people in Europe are using the system and everything. Uh, and I've been publishing for the last two years, uh, the calendar and the entire count. It's known as the astronomological calendar. And that shows the position of all of the planets as they actually are in the sky, along with all of the different cycles of the moon, which is important for biodynamic gardening and those principles, which, like I said, most of biodynamic principles, everything that I could test that was true and, and effective made its way into uh, alchemiculture. But alchemiculture also borrows from permaculture, you know, agricultural practices and lots and lots and, and alchemical lab practices too. So like we make medicines for the soil, just like we make medicines for people and we administer it to the soil through watering and compost teas and, you know, other ferments and stuff like that. In the same way that we administer spagyrics to us through water directly under the tongue and through uh, adding it to wines and stuff like that. So it's basically the, the exact same concept. Um, so that's what we've grown into with um, our astrological work. And we use our own system because we have found that it works exceptionally well in the face of all of the research and the scrutiny that I have put into it over a period. I mean, we started those clinical trials in, in 2014, but I was already studying for like two or three years in the lab trying to find out like what works best and then doing, you know, tropical system astrology planting versus biodynamic planting and just seeing like, oh, the squash that we planted with biodynamic seeds at the time of the biodynamic calendar had a much greater vitality and vigor than plants that were planted according to the tropical system. And so I had already seen some of that. We just had to flesh it out through a whole series of of uh, different clinical trials. And ultimately the system of astrology that we use now is also the same system that I use to calculate uh, the times of people's births and so on and so forth and the positions of the planets in order to be able to eliminate ends astrale for them too or cause of disease due to uh, the position of the planets. 
uh, or technically it means cause of disease due to the stars, but it's the positions of the planets. It's, it's all a geometric relationship to where the planets are in their transits versus where they were at the time of your birth. Uh, typically trines are a good thing. Uh, conjunctions are a good thing. Uh, oppositions, squares are bad and sextiles can go either way. With sextiles, you typically get out of something. Uh, it, it's a good result in the long run, like a good learning experience, but it came with so many trials. It was like, well, that's not what I wanted, but I got something that was still valuable. That's excellent, man. That's, that's all very valuable. Uh, I'm sure information that you've, you've, uh, <laughs> probably done a lot of us quite a service by investing so much time. Uh, and I'm going to have to get my hands on that calendar for sure. Uh, very interesting stuff. I, I typically have two stock questions that I ask everybody uh, when we approach the end of our discussion. <clears throat> Ma, I was going to ask you if, if you have a ritual component to, to any of your personal practices. Uh, it sounds like you've engaged in, in some level of that by uh, the, you know, the conscious awareness that, that you bring to any of that stuff, but maybe you could elaborate a little on that in, in uh, I guess, in relation to this question. Uh, if you are, um, well, I'll just, I'll just leave it at this. How do you experience magic? Yeah. Um, how do I do it now is different than how I did it a younger one. I was trained to experience magic through the alchemical practices in the Western esoteric tradition with Kabbalah and Kabbalistic works. Um, and so that'd be very familiar to most of the Masons and Rosicrucians and folks of the Golden Dawn and so on and so forth, where there's a ritual Western very clearly Western, essentially Egyptian derived type of um, magical practice, ceremonial magical practice. Uh, and for many, many years, that was kind of the thing that I would use because that's what I was taught this tradition with. As I gained familiarity with it and was able to allow my own soul and my own volition to speak and you know it's just like learning music right you have to stick by the laws of music until you know how to break the laws of music in a way that still sound good it's like that same thing and so um at the point where i could break free uh and start to do things that were a little less um how can you call it like uh sanctioned <laughs> by various organizations <laughs> right um, I started getting into Druidry. And of course, uh, Druidry, modern Druidry has the same exact roots as modern day Freemasonry and modern day Rosicrucianism is that they were largely built upon during that 19th century occult revival. And uh, I got into the works of John Michael Greer. I got the opportunity to meet him in Las Vegas, actually, at the International Alchemy Guild uh, conference one time. And uh, we were able to work together a little bit uh, during that conference to talk about a couple of key ideas. And, you know, he's primarily from the Welsh tradition and enjoys that 19th century occult revival vibe. I was starting to kind of grow away from that um, during that time, just because there's a certain level of it that is highly syncretic and highly theosophical too, especially the, the more that you get into the 21st century theosophical type thinking and syncretic thinking started to like create new things. And, and for me, it just wasn't my flavor anymore. And so I started to move on. 
Um, my practices now are more of a Druid tradition um, of Ireland, and they're very, very personal, although I do belong to Ireland's Celtic Druid Temple, um, which is run by Con and Neve. And then I also belong to Do More Druid Order, which is uh, an order here in the United States based out of Colorado Springs. And uh, in both of those, we learn how to speak Irish and how to use Irish law, known as Brehon law, and how to be able to recite massive verses of poetry and uh, to remember genealogies and lots of other things, along with various ritual practices. Um, and I create a lot of my own works, especially because I branched out many, many years ago into folk magic, especially Appalachian-based folk mag magic and, and various forms of hedge magic and you know, I've just always been interested in magic, I guess, all my life. So I've taken in a lot of different things and um, in my own way have found what works and what sticks and what I feel appeases uh, my sensibilities and have just kind of stuck with that. But it's it's kind of eclectic in a way. And it's my own personal practice, even though it's largely inspired by uh, historical traditions, Irish Druidry in particular. But uh, yeah, I experience magic on the daily. In fact, you know, people will often say like, well, why do you believe in magic? It's like, I don't just believe in magic. I depend upon it. <laughs> you know, like that has got me everywhere. Every little advancement in my life has been because of the hard work and the mental focus that I put in to being able to get to that next level and that next phase. And if you understand that life ultimately is a ritual, which is what I think magic is the training for, then you understand that if you limit the variable factors down and down and down and down and down by finding out. And, uh, you know, for me, I have always approached magic like I approach my lab work. It's an experiment to see which method works best. And then I refine it and use that method. It's like, okay, now even within that, what are the variables and how can I keep reducing it? And that has leaked over into all areas of my life to where I would say that my life essentially is a ritual from waking to sleeping, I'm constantly doing things that help me to attain the results that I want to be able to attain. And I use the same forces that I would use in ritual in my waking life to be able to attract those things to me. So. Very well put, man. That's um, that is, uh, I think a beautiful perspective and it's, it's one that ultimately I think is, is, is hard one, you know, you have to have put a lot of serious time into, uh, into this particular work in order to derive that kind of uh, I, the way that I put it to, to students is that it's similar, similarly to what you were saying, because especially nowadays, everybody wants to be an expert, but nobody wants to do any, any of the actual work because of things like Wikipedia and stuff like that. And don't get me wrong. Some people are gifted, but um, yeah, at, at, fir at first you have to, you have to practice magic like music. You have to learn the scales. You have to learn the modes and the notes and all that stuff. And because it's something you do, but eventually like music, it will be something that you are, you, you, you just, and, and it, you'll be able to improvise in the same way, moment to moment to moment. And to be able to, um, uh, I've never, heard it even put the way that you put it uh, to view life as a ritual i think that that's incredibly beautiful it, it, it touches on all sorts of things having to do with both order and spontaneity in our in our universe free will and determinism you know and and just riding riding the opportune 
kairos the time and the moment so that's that's a brilliant 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 thing to say uh at least in my humble opinion um very cool the, yeah the the last the last question that i ask everybody is so um everything that we've spoken about this evening we've covered quite a bit of ground there's a lot to chew on for anybody listening to this episode uh which what three books podcasts uh seminars what have you in any media give the listeners uh if you please three recommendations for um i guess extracurricular learning on uh on alchemy or anything we've touched on this evening cool yeah um for those that want to dive more into a uh, an integrated approach to alchemy meaning that like psychological spiritual and laboratory being all kind of one ironically the very best book out there is called the complete idiot's guide to alchemy and um i love that book uh dennis hauck wrote it um it's not like i wouldn't say it's a complete view of all lab alchemy practices but it doesn't pretend to be that either it kind of shows a wide perspective of modern laboratory practices and where the psychological and spiritual work fit inside of those lab processes so that whatever whatever type of alchemy you begin to practice, you can do it with a greater knowledge, understanding uh, of all of the other components that kind of go along with it. So that's like that's a really great foot in the door. For those who want to take their lab alchemy practice just a little bit deeper and learn how to integrate those types of things, uh, either of the books by Robert Allen Bartlett are great. He has The Way of the Crucible, and he also has a book called Real Alchemy. Both of those are absolutely fantastic. Before him, there was, uh, well, I guess there was one by Brian Cotenoir, which is really abbreviated. It's great once you practice, because then you're like, oh, yeah, in plain language, he described it. But when you're just starting out, it's too plain of language and it's not detailed enough. So Robert really makes his work detailed enough to help get you through the work and to understand what's going on. Um, and then the the other thing that I can never suggest too, too highly is to get, get the works of Jean Dubuis. Uh, reach out to me if you can't get them, uh, support at phoenixaurelius.org. And uh, I can set them up in a Google Drive with the public share folder if you guys, you know, if we get enough interest. But you should be able to find PDFs of those pretty quickly. And there is actually a physical copy uh, that is available. I've got it on my shelf over here of Spagyrics, uh, the entire coursework, which initially was like volumes one and two published by Triad Publishing. Those are kind of rare to find physical copies of the triad publishing, but the new uh, version is even better in my opinion, because it includes a lot of coursework that was only published in French. And it has all of the English uh, coursework, which was translated by Patrice Malaise, as well as new translations of the French work, which make it even more complete than the ones put out by triad publishing in my own experience. Um, and the, the basis of uh, esoteric knowledge, or I think it's called the Foundations of Esoteric Knowledge by Jean Dubuis is kind of the Western primer, Western esoteric primer, that even if you've been a part of Western esoteric organizations or, or fraternities, et cetera, for a long time, 
it would be a good idea to read that in particular to give you the idea of what flavor of esoteric terminology and practice, which is very Kabbalah heavy, that um, Jean Dubuis will constantly refer to in uh, the rest of his his uh, alchemical works. And, you know, he goes all the way through making the red stone through the flamel pathway. So you start with herbs and move your way on up through successively more difficult laboratory um, processes, as well as going through, um, and they're very non-linear too, which is an interesting thing. It's non-linear. It's like based on the teachings that he has to get you to a point of really solid familiarity with alchemical corpus. I would just advise listeners not to think that, um, not to mistake those works for what Jean Dubuis uh, wrote about them for. He wanted to be, be able to say, okay, you know, we've, we published this now, once you're done, you're done. You're a, you're a really good alchemist. You're not a master alchemist ever. I wouldn't consider myself a master alchemist. I wouldn't consider Robert Bartlett doesn't consider himself a master alchemist. Other people might look at us and say things like that. We don't say that about ourselves though, because no matter how much those books have shown you, they're still just scraping the surface of all that there is. They're just showing you the rules and the rules end there. Now it's time for you to go out and explore, make new rules, bend the rules, find what happens in different situations, mix items of pharmacopoeia and figure out new things, you know? So um, yeah, those three would kind of be the next platforms. And for folks who are interested in staying in a vein of more modern research, because I take my stuff very heavily out of the, uh, esoteric tradition because I can't show that it's perennially true or objectively effective outside of the systems of initiation that it's meant for uh, in terms of practical medicine making. I do have a podcast. We are coming back with a new season. It's called the Alchemiculture Podcast. And in fact, Sky from Philosophical Minds actually made our logo for us. So um, many, like two years ago now. So, uh, I do talk about lots of topics like this and there's a couple of episodes from our first season too, that people can, uh, dive into if they're interested in learning a little more. Amazing. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining me tonight, Phoenix. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I hope we, uh, I hope we speak again real soon. Ike. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah. Anytime, anytime, man, and you want to have a conversation, let's do it.